Welcome to Human Solutions, simplifying HR for people who love HR. From AIM HR Solutions on True Story FM, I'm Pete Wright, and today we're talking all about classification. Oh, yes, this is the sexiest topic in all of HR. I'm very excited to talk about it because I'll bet some of you out there listening aren't entirely sure if all of your employees are classified correctly as exempt or non-exempt. And the answer is not as straightforward as you think. Today, we've got HR experts Dan Baker and Kyle Pardo from AMHR Solutions here to talk to me and educate me and by educating me, educate you on the ins and outs of exempt versus non-exempt classification. Dan Baker, Kyle Pardo, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around some sort of uh, uh, some sort of line of comedy or uh, uh, jokes or sexiness to make exemption really pop. And so I'm counting on you both to help me do that. What can we do to make exemption really pop? Well, that's a tough one, Pete. Um, we're going to do our <laughs> best. Um, but uh, with, with this stuff, um, it's important to pay attention to the details for sure. We'll try to weave in as much uh, humorous as possible, but you know, it's 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 quite the challenge you've given if us. If you get if you get us going, we could probably talk about it for a while too, yeah. Pete. So don't don't, uh, <laughs> don't put it past Dan and I. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and start. For those uh, who are uh, maybe not as fluent in the language of exemptions. Uh, why don't you kick us off with uh, the the bare basics? What is exempt versus non-exempt classification, and and uh, what are the implications behind decisions we make on how we classify employees? Dan, you want to start? Absolutely, thank you, Pete. So let's start off with you know what is the FLSA? So that's the Fair Labor Standards Act, um, and that sets the standards for employers with respect to minimum wage from a federal perspective, which, as we all know, is seven twenty five. That, and that dates back to July of 2009. Um, so obviously, the federal government is quite a bit behind the time. Mass, the minimum in Massachusetts, of course, is $15 an hour. And many, many states, including some municipalities, have raised uh, their own minimum wage. So that's really what we need to, need to pay attention to. And throughout everything we'll be talking about today, we always have to be aware of not just what's happening at the federal government with respect to the Fair Labor Standards Act, but also what's happening at your state levels, and particularly for employers who are multi-state employers. It's critically important. But getting back to the FLSA, um, so what we're looking at here is the minimum wages, uh, overtime pay, uh, when when that's required, over 40 in a week in the case of the legislation, Also, um, record keeping, what type of records need to be kept, as well as provisions for child labor. So those are the four main categories. And when you talk about what is exempt and what is non-exempt, I would uh, advise employers when they think about this question to start with the notion of all employees are are non-exempt, meaning they are covered by the Fair Labor Standards Act. And then um, from there, when we're looking at exemptions, we have to look at the specific rules and pay very, very close attention to the duties of what someone is doing, not just the job titles, but what are those jobs actually doing? And we can walk through some examples of, of what the tests are for exemption and give some practical examples of what they might be. 
you know, just add a little bit to that. I, I have a colleague who always asks me, which one is it? Is is it is exempt that you get overtime? Is not like what, what am I exempt from? I was going to say exactly those words. Oh, yeah. What am I exempt so, from? <laughs> so if you're exempt, you're exempt from overtime, meaning you don't get overtime. So if you are a salaried, you know, employee, you can work 40, 50 hours a week and you don't get overtime, you're not eligible for it, you're exempt. So that's the that's kind of the easiest way to think about it. Exempt from overtime. And yet, Dan, you just said, start with the assumption that all your employees are non-exempt. Correct. Did I hear that right? Yes. yes. And, and, you know, what we're always talking about when it comes to these uh, these questions is making sure we stay on side with respect to the law. So thinking about it from from a practical perspective, as an owner or a management of a company, one of the things you're always concerned about, in addition to staying on side with respect to the rules, also risk mitigation. So you don't want to set yourself up for potential uh, legal troubles when it comes to exempt and non-exempt. Um, and so when we think about that, um, you know, there are three things that we think about when we think about, you know, what is exempt? What does that mean? Well, there are three tests, the first of which is salary level. So that means that there's a certain amount of money you must pay each and every single week. That salary level currently is $684 a week. That's established by FLSA. Um, again, it's been a while since that's been changed. That's what the number is, $684 a week. That, that's the, the okay. minimum must be paid. The, the second. And, and so once you've gone over that minimum, that means what? Well, you, that's the minimum you need to pay. But of course, you, you, you know, and, and in med jobs that are exempt are paid much, much more than that. But $684 of course, yeah. establishes the okay. minimum. So okay. you can't pay $680 a week and be considered to be exempt. It's $684. Okay. 684. 684. Got it. Very precise. Right. Okay. What is the second test? The second test is a salary basis. That means you can't be paid on an hourly basis. In order to be considered exempt, you must be paid on a salary basis, an amount that's established and consistent from week to week. Uh, and finally, okay. uh, the third test is the, is the duties test. And uh, the first two are relatively easy. The duties test is a lot more uh, uh, complicated, but when you look at a duties test, you're really looking at the, the main or most important duties that that employee performs, um, and the factors to be considered there. And they're not limited. This isn't an exhaustive list, but for example, what are the relative importance uh, of those duties? Um, the amount of time that the person spends performing those duties, their mm -hmm. relative freedom or not. Uh, from supervision and the relationship between the employee's salary and the wages paid to other employees for the same kind of non-exempt work. Uh, and generally, employees who spend 50% of their time performing exempt work will generally satisfy the primary duty requirements. So, Pete, I want to go back to a couple of things that, that Dan said that, that again, I'm, I'm going to share some feedback that I get from colleagues who say, help me understand this. What does that mean? And uh, the first point that Dan made, that I think is really important is to assume that your employees are non-exempt. So what he's saying, you know, err on the side of caution, assume you have to pay overtime to everybody and then go through these tests 
to, to make a decision of whether maybe you do have some employees who are exempt from that overtime that you don't have to pay it. But if you're ever in doubt, if you're ever going back and forth, you're like, I don't really know if this person is exempt or not, err on the side of caution and make them non-exempt, pay them overtime, and you'll be on the safer side of things. So that's, that's the first one. The second one, as Dan said, is that there's these three tests. There's the salary threshold test that you have to make a certain amount. You have to be paid on a salaried basis and you have to pass a duties test. You have to pass all three of those tests. So just because I pay you $80,000, I'm paying you a really healthy salary. It's above that salary threshold. I pay you the same amount every you know two weeks when you get your paycheck. It's a salary that you know you're going to get your paycheck. But the duties that you're doing, you're doing uh, kind of a, a repetitive job or something like that. You may not pass that portion of the test. And if you don't pass that, you could be a non-exempt employee. So I may still have to pay you overtime, even though I'm already paying you a healthy salary. So it's right, really important right. to know you have to you have to pass all three of those. And and when it comes to duties, are there any super easy, like, uh, you know, checklisty items that might tell you, okay, this person, for example, um, their duty is they also manage a team of 10, right? That, so now we does anything in the, the overall hierarchy of the organization, like if, depending on where you fall in the org chart, can that help you determine exempt versus non-exempt? It, it can't really be that easy, Pete. You know, it's got to be more complicated than that. I'm trying, so. Kyle. I'm trying. <laughs> Throw me a bone. <laughs> I mean, Dan might say something else. I'm going to say no, that, that, that it's not that cut and dry. And I'll tell you why is because part of the tests are things like, do you make decisions on matters of significance? What does that even mean? So, How do you know? Right. So what does that what does that mean? Yes. And so so you would need to have figure out what that means. There, there are definitions around it. Um, document it. Make sure it's in a job description. So if you're our office manager. And you decide how many pens we're going to buy and you're going to buy a new paper for our printer and you're going to order the lunch for our company meeting and you're going to put that on the company credit card. Are those decisions on matters of significance? And the, and the courts on that would probably say no. Okay. But if you're deciding, Seriously. if you're deciding to buy, I immediately our, thought you're talking you thought, about yes. the company credit yeah. card. That seems like a matter of significance. Yeah. You have suddenly fiduciary responsibility. Right. For, at some level yeah. for the organization. Yeah. So it has to be something more. It has to be something like you're buying the new $10,000 photocopier or you're you're engaging in our new rental of our new office space or, you know, really things that are, that are significant. So there, there are definitions, but it's that type of thought process that can be challenging for employers. Wow. Okay. Well, I don't want to put the cart before the horse here, Dan, but I, I'm I'm hoping at some point we can transition to how, you know, where some of these common mistakes are in classifications and how, particularly under FLSA, you can, your organization can get bit by making tough decisions. Yeah, Pete, and I would say, too, you mentioned the checklist. Um, I, I would um, advise employers to um, go to FLSA.gov. Um, the website is very, very good, very easy to follow. Not a lot of legalese. It's expressed in common, you know, regular English terms, easy to follow because it is quite complicated. And Kyle was giving some good examples, but there are specific exemptions. So there are about six exemptions that you can follow. Um, and I'll just name them off executive, administrative, professional, outside sales, certain computer um, related jobs, 
um, as well as um, there's also an exemption for highly compensated employees. We don't have the time today to get into all of the detail of those, but know that there are those six exemptions. And I would reiterate um, that we really do need to focus on what someone is doing and not necessarily even what they're called. So titles don't mean anything in FLSA, right? So don't think just because you call someone a manager, as an example, that you can call them exempt. That's not necessarily true. And I've seen this working with clients where we'll have a position that is uh, a lead and they're leading the work of maybe a group of employees, right? Um, but they're not necessarily responsible for performance management of those employees or, or a disciplinary action or hiring. So they don't have true management responsibilities. And, they, and, and even though they pro provide work direction, um, you know, typically they would not be exempt. So, you know, there are cautions. Or, you know, someone once said to me that um, FLSA is, is a field of um, mind, it's a field of minefields. You need to be careful uh, because there are a lot of things that can trip you up. Does, does shift work matter? And I'm, I'm asking because there is, you know, when you're, when you apply for a job and they tell you, okay, you're going to work, you know, shifts, maybe you're managing, a, a, you know, a team of people, but you're also managing a shift, say you're in retail or quick service uh, food, whatever that case may be. I can kind of make the case that that manager would be a prime among peers, um, but would be otherwise um, non-exempt. Uh, but say you go to work and you're becoming an HR manager and you're expected to be there. <laughs> you're not working a shift. You're expected to just be there all the time. Is there any qualification in that checklist for uh, accountability according to shift? Uh, shift work in and of itself, I, I would say no. But if you are regularly managing a team of employees and um, you're really involved in managing the business. So, you you know, you mentioned HR manager. So if I have, mm -hmm. uh, and, and generally, I would say that HR managers, we generally would see them because of what they do typically, the hiring, counseling of management, um, being involved with those types of decisions, which are, as Kyle pointed out, matters of significance. You could see them as, as being sort of exempt, but to shift work in and of itself, not so much. Okay, so uh, how can you get in trouble by messing up your classification system internally? That's a good question. I'm, I'm going to jump in on that one. Is that um, if you have been paying an employee exempt, so you've not been giving them overtime, you've been paying them exempt, um, and then you know someone brings a claim against your company or or the Department of Labor does an audit and they they look at the job and they say you know what this position really should have been non-exempt you should have been paying overtime for the last 6 months or a year or whatever it is the challenge is as a company do you have work records do you have hours of knowing when that employee worked to even go back and calculate whether you owe that person any back pay. And in many instances, the answer would be no. A lot of people don't track the time of their exempt employees. In fact, that's part of the exemptions that you're not really tracking uh, the hours exempt employees working. So, um, you know, if, Pete, if you brought a claim against our company and said, I should have been getting paid overtime for the past six months or whatever, the court would probably listen to you. If you had your own records and said, I've, I should be owed 10 overtime hours per week, they might take a look at that and say, that's true. The company owes you that money plus any penalties or uh, anything else associated with it. So um, go back to Dan's original point. If you're not sure, 
go the other way and make the person non-exempt and and pay the overtime. So it, you really want to make sure you, you have your employees classified correctly. And and it sounds like your record keeping has to be on lock. Yes, and, and under FLSA, the record keeping provision requires that employers uh, first of all display the official poster outlining requirements of FLSA, and they must also keep employee time and pay records, which would include things like uh, their total daily or uh, or weekly uh, straight time earnings, uh, their total overtime earnings, uh, if any, for that same time period, um, and any additions to or reductions or deductions from pay, um, as well as total wages paid each pay period. So when you mentioned a checklist, that's a checklist, the things that they must do. It sounds like that's that's moving us in the direction of making things easier. And yet, <laughs> somehow, it's not easy. This is not easy. So let's transition into calculating pay. I know there are some considerations around calculating overtime pay and how that's uh, attributed to employees. How? Uh, what do I need to be thinking about there? Uh, there, you know... Um, it's really, it's really simple, I think. Um, so if you're taking the things you should calculate, if you, you know, looking at overtime, what's the, what's the way to do it? And we're going to assume for purposes of this discussion that there's a single rate of pay. In other words, the, the job isn't split where someone's doing, you know, job A for some percent of the time that pays a, rate, a certain rate and job B. We may keep it simple and just assume it's a single rate. So I'll say that rate is $15 an hour. So the first thing you need to know is, how many hours did that person work that week? And what's what's the regular rate? So they work 40 hours, $15 an hour, that's $600. But in this particular week, the employee worked 45 hours. So we already know the regular rate for 40 hours, which is 600. If they then worked overtime, time and a half times the regular rate of 15 gives you an additional 2250. So we know that the regular rate plus the overtime rate gives you total pay. I think one of the complications comes in when we talk about bonuses. So we talk about bonus pay. We have to remember this concept of the regular rate. And very simply, if you have a bonus plan for your employees that isn't purely discretionary, what do I mean by that? It means it's not a guarantee. It's not tied to any production or performance. It's totally out of the goodness in goodwill of the employer that they grant it every year or, or grant it, they may, not, they may not grant it every year. And it may be different from year to year, but it's truly, for lack of a better term, a gift, right? There's no, there's no commitment to pay it. There's no agreement to pay it. It's totally discretionary. That bonus is not subject to the overtime calculations. Now, if you, on the other hand, you have a bonus that is, you know, tied to, directly tied to some, making some profit or some, you know, revenue goal or something like that, that can, that can be calculated. That's where companies potentially can run into problems. And it, in, in, it, in those cases, what companies need to do, and let's assume for purposes of the discussion, it's an annual bonus. Then the company must look back over that year and figure out how much of that bonus is actually earned each pay period, right? And calculate overtime based on that. So if everybody worked 40 hours, there was no overtime, there's no, no harm, no foul. 
However, if you had overtime at all in there, you need to recalculate that bonus because you need to pay time and half. You're basically allocating that bonus as if it were part of their regular pay over the period. You you said something, though, that, that made me uh, curious about the the times we are living in, uh, which is the you know the living through the pandemic and COVID, and there I I know we have headlines uh, around how organizations, particularly healthcare organizations, handle the the massive uh, overtime uh, compensation for employees that are frontline workers. Is there any consideration in FLSA for things like you know? hazard pay for, you know, for lack of a better term right now, uh, working in frontline situations or in, you know, uh, fighting fires on federally protected land? Is that is there anything around those uh, considerations? Uh, just the fact that if um, someone gets hazard pay uh, and it's pay in conjunction with, uh, you know, a difficult job, that becomes part of their regular rate. So again, if overtime becomes a consideration, it needs to be factored in. And keep in mind, this is what we're talking about here is only particular to non-exempt employees. When you have exempt mm-hmm. employees, the bonus will be what the bonus is, right? Yeah. But for non-exempt employees, you have to treat it as if it were earned over the period. Over the whole yeah. period. Okay. Th- there are some uh, words in here, words like good faith when it comes to um, accurate timekeeping and uh, consideration in the employee-employer relationship that feel a touch fuzzy to me. Can, can we walk through uh, the, the, the process of record-keeping, the audits that go along with that, and, and how that impacts the organization? Sure. I, you know, um, with anything, you want to do, do what's right. Right. Every employer wants to do what's right. And, and we understand that this can be challenging and confusing. And so a couple of things to keep in mind um, when you have employers fill out timesheets or time records, um, if, they, if you're still doing it on paper, make sure they're they're completing them on a, on a weekly basis or bi-weekly basis along with your your payroll and they're signing off on it. Um, most companies probably now have some kind of either um, electronic system that they use to capture time or a, a sign in, sign out, sometimes using your fingerprint or a, a scan. So they're really pretty official sure. in, in that sense. But uh, having accurate time records and having them available in case any other you know question about your pay came up is really important. Um, the other one that I would suggest is um, making sure you have a good system of identifying how you came up to the decision of whether somebody was exempt or non-exempt. So having job descriptions that clearly identify what somebody does. And as uh, Dan mentioned, there, there's a great website through the Department of Labor. Um, you can go on there. You can it, It'll ask you a series of questions about the job and the responsibilities and whether it makes decisions on matters of significance and things like that. And you can go through this little questionnaire, answer somewhere between five and 10 questions, and it will come up with a summary at the end that says, based on the information you provided, this position is likely exempt or non-exempt. And, you know, in an HR role, I would probably go through that process. I would print out that little summary and I'd attach it to my job descriptions. So if the Department of Labor ever came in and audited, I, sh- I can show that I did the best I could. I answered the questions. I answered them, you know, um, really taking a look at what the position included. And while the Department of Labor might come up with a different decision than, than I came up with, it wasn't that I ignored it in my organization, but that I really tried to do the best I could with it. Right. You acted in good faith. 
There we are. Okay. So I know in our fictitious uh, manufacturing organization, we're growing the team and we have uh, a new rank and that is the rank of sales. We have some that are organizational sales. They work inside of our organization. There are, uh, they just sit in the office and hit the phones and the computers. But we also have some field salespeople. Now, I know there is some complication around handling sales in this conversation around exemption. I don't know what it is. So outside sales people are exempt. So typically that would mean somebody who's outside the company, they're out on the road, they're driving to customers, bringing their products with them and selling them outside the company. Pharmaceutical sales, exactly. lumber sales. Right, right. right. Not in the road yeah. Inside right. sales is non-exempt. They're eligible for overtime. So they're sitting at your desk inside your company, making phone calls from inside the company, selling whatever it is. And those positions are non-exempt. Now where it gets a little bit fuzzy is that some of these strategies have changed during COVID. People weren't able to go out to companies and bring pharmaceuticals or eyeglasses or whatever it is that they were selling. They weren't able to bring those out. And so they might have set up a Zoom call or something like that to show the product online. And so it moved into a different realm of whether it was inside or outside. And that's where I think it can be confusing for companies. So what do you do? Well, hopefully you would you would imagine that those roles, roles that used to be outside the company, now that we're thankfully getting past COVID, those roles are probably transitioning back out again. Um, but I would um, caution companies, again, if someone is selling inside the company, um, I would, as a first thought, think of them as not exempt. Uh, unless you can exempt them under, let's say, the administrative exemption classification, which would be possible. But again, it's going to depend on the job duties and going through that FLSA advisor that's on the um, Department of Labor's website, which is, again, very, very helpful, will help them with, to answer that question. Uh, what I, I'm sure, as you said, Kyle, you guys could probably talk about this all day. I feel, I feel like uh, we've hit a lot of the big points, but uh, Monday morning, 8 a.m., day one, can you each give me uh, the first thing that you would do to either build or review your exempt policy and uh, and make sure you're steering the ship in the right direction as an HR pro? Dan? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, I mentioned mi risk mitigation. If I were new to a company, what would be first thing on my list would be to look at the jobs that were exempt that I had that were highly populated jobs. Uh, particularly if they were lower level in the organization. They had a lot of people uh, and they're doing something that I thought might be a non-exempt job. They're classified as exempt and I've got 30 people doing that. I'd, that's the very first thing I would look at. All right, Kyle, Monday morning. Uh, where I would start, I'd give you a couple of job titles and these are the ones that, that get people into trouble. I would take a look at titles like customer service, office manager, and supervisor or lead that... Dan mentioned to really take a look at what what those people do because those are the ones that kind of you know they end up on that that borderline and people really aren't sure which way to go with them. Well, it sounds to me like Monday morning I'm going to bring up the FLSA advisor and start entering some of those titles in there and and making sure that I have my ship in order. Uh, Dan Baker and Kyle Pardo, thank you so much for this 
uh, Exemptions 101 tutorial today. Uh, you are the voices of reason and calm in a rough seat. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Thank you, everyone, for downloading and listening to this show. You'll find all the notes that we've been talking about. You'll find these great links, including the link to the FLSA advisor uh, in the show notes. Just swipe up in your podcast app or visit us on the website to learn more. On behalf of Dan Baker and Kyle Pardo, I'm Pete Wright, and we'll see you next week right here on Human Solutions, Simplifying HR for people who love HR.